Storytelling makes the difference and it helps paint the picture beyond data. And so historically there was always an uphill battle between the data and the legitimization of it and whether it was right or wrong and the sample size. I still stand behind that it's valid. Helping tell a story, I think sometimes really gets people's eyes open. And, you know, we've made some significant changes to prevent friction. I'll call it friction in the health system because a lot of the times we design things as a system for us and not necessarily with the patient in mind. And so we've tried to do a lot better job of let's walk the path of the patient. Welcome to Moments Move Us, a people first podcast unlocking the power of meaningful moments by bringing you stories that inspire. I'm your host, Rebecca Coring. Today's guest is Aaron Davis, Vice President and Chief Experience Officer at UMC Health. Innovation is something that should always be prioritized, especially in healthcare. In this episode, Aaron shares his commitment to innovation. And in one example, he describes UMC's journey of developing a mental health initiative that has transformed the organization. In our conversation, we also explore the power of storytelling, culture, and service in creating a positive patient experience. Aaron reveals how these elements have played a significant role in fostering a compassionate and healing environment for patients and their families, allowing UMC Health to achieve fantastic results in experience overall. Beyond that, Aaron invests in his team to create a culture of trust and value. From being a transporter to now serving as a vice president, Aaron has lots of insights to share with us for those hoping to make a mark in the healthcare industry. Well, hello, Aaron. Welcome to Moments Move Us. I am so happy to have you on the show today. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciate it. But one of the things that has really struck me about UMC is your dedication to passion and how that kind of infiltrates every single thing you guys do from your culture, your brand promise, the whole sort of nine yards. Can you kick us off today just talking about passion and how that kind of underlies so much of the work you're doing at UMC and how that might impact you too as an individual? Absolutely. So the platform to change really began for us in 2002. So when we were looking at our health system, we were looking at employee engagement, we were looking at patient satisfaction, and neither one of those things really were something to be impressed by or something to mm -hmm. really promote in the community. And so we really became to this point as a health system that says, we don't want people to come here simply because either as a county facility, they come because it's something they can't really afford or because of a level one trauma center, they come because that's where the experts go, right? And so we wanted to really change the way people saw us first and how people come to work and wanted to have a passion about working with each other and serving patients, and then second, to the community and how people see us to come to make us really a provider of choice. Passion really became one of those words that we rallied behind. And how that began was our CEO engaged our employees first and said, okay, let's define this. What type of place do you want to work in? What are some words? What are some phrases that would define a strong, healthy culture? And really, we came up with our standards of excellence, very similar to what other hospitals have, and so we have eight. So that was where that really started. But then for us, we wanted to name our culture. So let's put a name to it. Let's define it. Let's put some bricks and mortar around it. And so we named it Service is Our Passion. And that really began a rally cry around how we treat one another and how we treat our patients. 
And we slowly began to measure that. We would do every year an annual employee satisfaction survey, which we just finished about two months ago. And then we began to expand the voice of the customer by asking every really main doorway, uh, would you recommend us? How was your experience? And we started benchmarking that off of other health systems. Now, in order to get there, really, we read books, really great books, Hardwiring Excellence by Quint Studer, right? Or Good to Great by Jim Collins. A lot of different materials that brought us to our defining moment of the health system. And then we sought out experts. So there were other health systems that were already to the point where they were achieving that results and high performing. And so we picked the phone and called them, went to visit them, saw how they did it, brought it back, made it our island and emulated some of those best practices. Well, some practically things we do is, you know, we, every leader is expected to write thank you cards every single week to employees on the front lines or to coworkers or peers. We greet at the front of the hospital. So every executive, every director or in the main hospital escorting, greeting, uh, welcoming people throughout our campus, because it can be daunting. It can be overwhelming. And then just simply how we treat one another. We instituted an internal manage-up system to where if things go well and people do exceptionally well, then we're recognizing each other. And so that really began to move positively. And it wasn't quick. It was year over year. It was a probably a 10 to 15-year journey to really getting to where we are today, having phenomenal patient experience, phenomenal employee engagement, getting to a point where we feel confident, really going into it, going into the pandemic and going through that. You know, when you have all those safeguards and operational sort of pieces in place that really protect your cultural direction, I think it's a lot easier to see them become reality. Like when I think about passion right now and where we are as an industry, you know, I worry we all had so much passion, you know, prior to pandemic, during pandemic that drove, I think, everyone through really being able to care for people at, when there was more uncertainty than there's ever been in healthcare. And then now people are struggling with reigniting their passion and getting back to their calling. How do you guys keep it fresh? And what would you say to folks that are out there? Like they feel like they've really given it their all, but their cups are slowly starting to empty. That's a great question. I think one of the things we did, not only on the inside, but on the outside is we wanted to use that word passion and make it synonymous between internal and external customers. And so about two years ago, we partnered with a consulting firm and we asked the community what their perceptions of us were beyond the patient experience surveys, beyond the Google reviews. We really wanted to hear how we were perceived. We came up with an external campaign called Our Passion Is You. And so it really plays off the word passion, which we come to really hold true but then it does play that out, right? I want to get people back to the things they love and doing the things that really steal their cup. From a consumer or a patient side of things, we started telling stories and we would take patients, we would tell their story. We'd ask them, of course, what were you doing before your healthcare instance or situation? And how can we get you back to that passion? Whether it's riding a bicycle or playing the piano or being involved with sports. And so I think to the community, they saw their own community members living back that passion after a healthcare uh, moment. For employees, we wanted to make sure that we didn't just try to lean too much into the culture of the past and say, it's going to get us through. They believe in us. We can just get through this because there was so much uncertainty. And so we doubled down in a lot of different ways to make employees feel heard and cared for and invested in. 
So a few examples, we expanded some of our EAP resources for employees. So prior to the pandemic, uh, they should go to get eight sessions per year for them and their significant other or their family members. Through the pandemic, we increased that to 12. We actually hired three on-site counselors to be here in the hospital, rounding throughout the campus, rounding throughout the clinics, just to provide accessibility and to really try to combat the stigma about getting help. But it's confidential, but they're available and accessible. And we built a tranquility room where people during the midst of their shift can go and just unwind and has massage chairs and coffee and Cokes and easy music. And it's just out of the unit to give them that peace of mind. We invested in our wellness program. We, we really retooled it. Yeah. And so we thought of every, well, to our best ability, every aspect of wellness. And so whether it was physical, emotional, spiritual, maybe community, and then also financial. So we really wanted to try to provide services to our 5,000 employees that really would maybe speak to them to try to help them reach other cups. That, in addition to the pizza that everybody kind of talks about that we gave out in droves or the gift cards or the thank you notes, just all those different things to really fill people back up. We really tried to be sensitive to that. You, when you talk about all the things that you did and then you naturally begin to talk about combating stigma. And I think it goes back to whether people get help or not, I think a lot has to do with whether they feel safe enough to actually take that step. How do you do that? Because I know that the culture that you have at UMC is so special. Like, How do you make sure that people feel comfortable to be able to take steps and take advantage of things? I know a lot of folks that I've spoken to talk about how they've really expanded a lot of EAP sort of resources and all the things that they've done, but they don't get taken advantage of. So they just sit there. So how did you guys do that? And what do you attribute it to? <laughs> Sure. So I think one of the first things we did was we just broke down the barrier in terms of you've got to go somewhere offsite to be seen by someone. We brought it to them. Like I said, our counselors using Pinterest and clever ways, you know, they would go out to the units and they would have snacks and they would meet people and just get to know them on a personal level, not in a counseling session, not in a therapy session, but just how are you doing today? And our chaplains would go right along with them. And so there's a spiritual aspect of it. There's this scientific aspect of it where they just work in conjunction and they would make sure that they're working to the units and clinics and the support departments and the basement on the sixth floor. They would go everywhere and just build those relationships first. Then we would have offerings that would be in mutual environments or safe environments, whether we're doing a book study. 24-7 was the book we read or work-life balance. We would have lunches and we bring them in and they can just sit there and listen take what they wanted and leave without any commitment, essentially. So we just really try to do it in a way that they felt safe and they felt that we were really trying to engage them. Looking at 2022 to 2023, already we're projected to see another 39% increase in utilization of EAP services. We know it's working and people have, from talking to some of the counselors at a high level, we pivoted a little bit away more from COVID and the pandemic and the stress that's associated with that, even though it's still there, and more toward, hey, I've come and I've enjoyed our time and help me with my relationships, help me with my marriage, help me with my work relationships. And so it's kind of a life coach relationship that has formed to where people get more than just, I'm overwhelmed with this pandemic and the uncertainty of it. 
you guys have received so many accolades, like Texas best place to work, health grades, top 10%, five out of five stars in experience, 94% of employee engagement from Fred King. I mean, the list goes on. You guys are unbelievable sort of top performers in so many of these areas. And as the leader of experience, Aaron, you, know, you just shared so many things you all are doing that lead to improved culture and experience. And when you think about team members and patients and how they're both levels of consumers for you as an organization. Can you talk a little bit about consumerism and how you approach some of this work to continue to raise the bar every time? So you're already, you know, incredible. And you said it was over a 10 year process. This has been a work in the making, but how do you keep driving this forward and elevating the experience for everyone to achieve these results? So I, that's a great question. I appreciate that. So the first thing, and it is getting a little bit tougher these days, but hiring the right people. And so we really do our very best to find the best talent. And then we put them through a series of interviews, right? So we have peer interviews for all entry positions to where it's not only just a proficiency or competency interview, but it is a cultural fit interview. And we make sure that we hire the right people on first. So that's a good way to start. And they, upon hiring, they agree to, to live out our standards and to adopt those and to embrace those as much as we can. Once they get here, we have very, a variety of ways to get them onboarded, but we really try to emphasize that compassion and that service really does work. So there's a book that just came out called Compassionomics, and it's a phenomenal book that really taken a scientifically evidenced approach to proving that compassion both reduces individual burnout it leads to good health outcomes. And it does so much for the ultimate long-term care of the patient because they establish a environment of trust and they're much more likely to be trusted toward their healthcare providers and much more compliant post-discharge. And so we use science to really prove that it works, that it's not just lip service. And Sodexo did a study, I believe in 2015, and they talked, they surveyed patients and asked them, what are you afraid of when you come into the healthcare environment? What are you fear? And it was a typical things. First was infection, death, the bill, incompetence. So those are some of the things that patients typically fear. What they didn't realize in the study that they were going to find was that when patients encounter healthcare, that they encounter two main things. The first one is a loss of control. And so if you think about a healthcare environment, what do we take away from patients and families when they come in? Well, we take away what they can wear, what they can eat, when they can eat, how many visitors, if at all, during COVID, no visitors at all, when they can go home or if they can go back to their home. There's a tremendous amount of loss of control, even privacy on a smaller level, having someone help you to the restroom, wearing a gown that's not the most appealing. And the second thing the study found was that people experience a sense of depersonalization. And I think this is really where service comes to the most impactful because Outside of the hospitals, you know, I'm Aaron Davis. I'm in my 30s. I have a wife and two wonderful daughters, and I love Texas Tech football, and I have all these things about me that make me who I am. And then the moment I become a patient in the hospital, I turn into this male, room 334, suffering from pneumonia. And all the things about me that make up who I am get stripped away. And healthcare providers, we have a unique opportunity to make a moment matter. Take something very routine and mundane for us and make it memorable for the patient. And I think it's a calling, it's an opportunity. And so I present that to our staff in that way. You're not just a housekeeper, 
but you are the frontline defense against hospital-acquired infections. We don't want C. diff. We don't want cotties and clapsies and happies and all these things. And so the better you can clean and connect while you clean, the more fulfilling your role will be. And you see the why beyond the role. And I think letting people do that in every single position throughout the health system adds a sense of value and reason and worth that goes beyond their job. Personally, that's really why I love healthcare. Because for me, you know, growing up, I grew up in a a very faith-enriched home, and it was really focused on serving others and caring for others and making sure that your arrows, fake arrows, aren't pointed always at yourself, but pointing outward. And so, you know, for me personally, there's a few verses that I always rally around, whether I can push those out to the community or to the organization or not, but you live by those, right? And so there's a verse in Philippians that talks about, you know, think on things that are true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and of good repute. And if there's any excellence of anything at all, just worthy of praise, then dwell on those things. And so I try to, for our employees, think about, you know, think of your worst day and what happened to you outside of these walls, maybe even in the walls, and then have some empathy about the patient that's going through something probably a lot more significant. Mm -hmm. And let's meet them and let's be a lifeline to them because they're looking for that. And I think that really establishes trust and hope. I love how you said that. And I appreciate you bringing your faith into it because I think, first of all, it reflects what you were talking about earlier related to passion for other people and getting to know them as unique individuals and being able to serve them. And then when you talk about depersonalization and the lack of control when you get into a hospital as being major factors of what people experience, you think about all of those things that make up who they are. But when they're laying in the bed, and they're just a number now, or they're just their diagnosis or what their next medication is going to be that really does dehumanize the experience. And it also takes away from the beauty of the art of caring, where it's like you have that moment to moment experience that gets you through something really hard, even if the outcome's not great. If you have those people interactions and you still feel full inside as a person, you're able to do so much more. So I appreciate the way you said that and how you bring it into it. When you think about this humanizing of healthcare and experiences and storytelling that you shared, can you share a moment where you saw things either go really well or a moment that maybe transformed you that maybe things weren't going as well, but how that changed your outlook on something or brought you to where you are? Absolutely. This is a personal story. My wife and I were expecting our first daughter. And it's just all the joy and the excitement that comes along with that. And so we came into the hospital that I worked for. And at the time, I was the director of patient experience. And so people knew me a little bit in terms of what I do and what I focused on. But for me, for the time I was there, it was all about her and all about our daughter. And my wife, unfortunately, really encountered some delays and some complications as we got closer to the due date, as we got closer to the delivery time and ended up staying on Pitocin for about 30 plus hours. It was a pretty long stent treatment there. And then after we had our daughter, just some additional complications. And there was a specific moment where my wife was not doing very well, and there was a lot of uncertainty. I'm holding my newborn baby, and my wife's not doing well, and just all those emotions of anxiety and fear and uncertainty start really circling. You know, as a husband, you want to stay 
it's okay. You're going to do great. You want to be confident and supportive, but on the inside, you're freaking out because I've seen codes before. I've seen situations like this go the wrong way. Then on the side of this, I'm an employee. I'm trying to support my position and represent well and advocate while still being a good steward of the role that I've been given by the health system. Long story short, we escalated. We had some providers come in, rush in, and do a lot of things quickly that got her back on the right track, which was really relieving. But I just remember those feelings. I remember seeing it and experiencing it and feeling like you have no control and no voice. And so from that point, you know, I always in my role dealt with grievances and complaints, you know, family members and patients that had bad experiences. It's not easy to do sometimes empathize and to meet people where they're at, especially if you yourself haven't maybe felt those feelings. But after that, I felt like it really helped me better understand and have patience with those situations. And we always kind of have two rules in, in the advocacy world. Mine are uh, number one, if someone comes in and they're at a seven or an eight, you stay at a three, stay at a four, just stay really low and let them really get things off their chest because they need to be heard. They want to be listened to. And over time, generally, they come down to your level. We're finishing the conversation with, I just wanted to be heard. And then the second one is words are like toothpaste. Once you get them out of that tube, you can't easily put them back in. And so I try to be very careful about what I say and to not be defensive and to not be argumentative, but to listen. Because in my moment with my wife, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. I just wanted to be heard and I wanted to have some type of solution. Not a defense, not an argument, but just a solution. And so that was probably a moment where it helped me really understand the significance of maybe my role, but really more importantly, the role of the bedside nurse and the aides and the support staff and all the things that come in the healthcare experience. The way you told that story really brought me into the room with you. I felt that because the luckiest of situations, we go to the hospital to have a baby, right? It's like the best reason to be at a hospital and to have things go in a different direction for a minute or even longer and to have that moment where you had to really advocate for your wife. And it's really tough. And it puts you in a hard spot because you are balancing both the professional and also the father sort of husband aspect of things and your emotions, I'm sure were really high. How has that informed the way you make decisions and run experience for the system? Do you think about that when you're looking at the way to maybe operationalize a new objective or initiative or does that come into play consciously or is it something that you feel like it's just part of you now? Fortunately, unfortunately, there have been other instances that have been able to be used as examples, right? So when family members come to the ER and they have a less ideal experience or when they're being seen by a physician in the clinic, right? They're not all bad, but I think that there's enough to where what I've learned is that storytelling makes the difference and it helps paint the picture beyond data. And so historically, there was always an uphill battle between the data and the legitimization of it and whether it was right or wrong and the sample size. I still stand behind that it's valid. Helping tell a story, I think sometimes really gets people's eyes open. And, you know, we've made some significant changes to prevent friction. I'll call it friction in the health system, because a lot of the times we design things as a system for us and not necessarily with the patient in mind. And so we've tried to do a lot better job of let's walk the shoot, let's walk the path of the patient. And what are the steps that they're going to take? Almost journey mapping 
what that looks like and is there friction? Is there a breakdown? And so we've done some amazing things. Some of those that I would example, some examples would be in our emergency center. So historically, our emergency center, I look at scores first. So they would score likely to recommend in the 50s and the 60s. And now that's our front door at 70,000 people a year coming through 70, 80,000, a little bit more than half say, yeah, I'd tell other people about you because it was that good. The vast majority wouldn't. So we've done a lot of things to enhance the fast track with patients that come in that aren't necessarily high acuity, but need to be seen. So our administrative team built a clinic on site. It's an urgent care clinic. So people that come in that it's not emergent and they're going to be waiting for an extended period of time and it's going to be expensive, we give them an alternative if they qualify. That's been a way to stop some of that backlog. The second thing is we have patient experience advisors in the ER and they are rounding in the lobbies and in the back and on patients that are boarded. And they just do their very best to communicate, to make sure the patient's expectations meet the experience to the best of our ability. And then they just do what I talked about. They connect. So where are you from? And what brings you here today? And tell me about yourself. And they just connect. They use words of empathy, words of affirmation, words of hope. And then even after the patient's admitted to the hospital, they'll go back two days later, one day later and say, hey, I was thinking about you. Just wanted to come and see how you're doing. And they had managed up the unit they went to. And it's this relationship. Again, seeing how my family member or I was treated in certain areas helps just paint the picture of what could be better and what we could do differently. And I would say this, it's not necessarily always an investment in technology. It's not an investment in equipment. At our organization, I want us to be high tech because I think the world demands that today, right? Seamless, interactive, IT oriented, but we need to be high touch. And so we market and we promote this. Our passion is you. That's what we're going to make it about you. And so we have to deliver them if they walk in our door or we've lost them. We've sold them something that's not true. And we want to be as true to that as we can every step. And also people will be so much more amenable to whatever awesome tech you have when they're greeted with someone who cares about that. They're just like, oh, like I'm safe here. I'm open now to whatever this facility has that they want me to do. And I'm going to be more willing to do it because I'm already starting to build trust. So even right. you know, if I had an experience in the past, it may not have been as good when I walk in and meet someone who's on the PX team or really anyone who's greeting me. And I have that moment of connection. I start to feel like I matter here beyond what I'm showing up with. Our scores now, I mean, if that's a measure of success, we're likely to recommend in the 80s for the emergency center. And that's huge. It's a 20% yeah. swing in less than 18 months because of just some things we put into practice to make sure that it was a good partnership between IT and human interaction. But also it takes the whole team. It's not just a motivational speaker and stories. It really is people embracing that and really wanting what's best for themselves and what's best for the patient. And when they believe that compassion made my life easier, makes their life more enriched and helps us get to the same outcome, it just makes that conversation a lot easier. Absolutely. And you said it yourself earlier. You're like, you know, the data is important. That tells a story. But what's even more important is the additional sort of human element of the story on top of it. And that's how we motivate people and get people to change and be in this sort of excellence mindset. Because I think a lot about how people have said sort of soft skills and, you know, yeah, like we want people to feel comfortable when they walk in here, but did anyone see the caps? We got to get up this part, this explanation of education, treating people with respect, dignity. So we need to work on that. But it's, you could say that until you're blue in the face. It doesn't mean anything if you're not 
leading with the calling of, am I achieving my personal mission as a nurse? Is my organization really caring for people in the way I want to see them cared for? This is all sort of so interconnected. And I think that's something that you guys have done so exceptionally well in how you view your culture and the outcomes that you get. So from a quality safety perspective and experience, looking at what the patients experience, it's all interconnected. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that one of the other barriers I felt to mention was that people have a perception of that it's going to take a lot of time to do that. I think that in Compassionomics, you mentioned that 56% of physicians say, I can't be compassionate because I just don't have time. That's the barrier. And they've done a study about how long it actually takes. Prescani has done one, I believe, in uh, Compassionomics. They looked at it and it's around 57 seconds. And they actually did a study. I think John Hopkins did with patients that had breast cancer. And in that study, they had compassion-infused interaction. And all the physicians basically did in that interaction was they would tell the patients that they would understand that it's difficult, it's going to be a challenging experience, but that the physician was going to be with them every step of the way, and that they would get through it together, and they would work on it together. And it was this communication, just very simple interaction of, I'm, I'm with you till the end, we're going to face this. And patients from that study felt less stress, less anxiety, and it only took less than a minute to make that meaningful connection. So housekeepers, nurses, physicians, greeters, anybody can really take that moment to just connect. It makes a difference. And if you think about the 57 seconds, I'm so happy you brought that up. It's also think about how much time you can save. If you can connect with someone for 57, and that's just an additional seconds of your interaction, you're going to save a lot of time of additional communications later of people feeling like they weren't heard and questioning a lot of what's being said to them and what their treatment plan is and all of these things. So I look at it as actually like a time savings, <laughs> because if you can connect, you're going to save all of those additional sort of challenges that are going to come from not connecting in the first place. Absolutely. And when we look at our health system for grievances and complaints, the number one reason that grievances and complaints happens is because of a perception of attitude and a breakdown of communication. That's it. And so when I started in healthcare, I was actually a transporter. That was my first job. And moving patients and equipment and resources around. And I remember the first day of training, my trainer did. He said, you have two rules. The first one is don't get lost. This is a big place to which I subsequently got lost. So that's fine. And then the second was, he says, you've got to tell the what or explain the what. I'm like, explain the, what are you talking about? He says, everything you do, explain it in a way they can understand. That's it because it's their healthcare. It could be their first time. It could be their last time, but you've got to make sure they have less anxiety and more confidence in you and in us. And so I would think of ways to do that. I'm going to lock the chair so it doesn't move for your safety. I'm going to cover you with this blanket to provide your privacy and to keep you warm down the hallways. I'm going to wipe down the wheelchair and make sure it's sanitary before you sit down. All the things that I would do, I would try to explain the what. And again, as you said, it saves time, it increases confidence, and it reduces anxiety. I'll never forget. I was pregnant with my son. I was nine weeks pregnant, and I got cellulitis in my leg. And I had to go to the hospital and they were taking me for imaging. And as I was being like, I was in a bed and as I was transported down to imaging and the transporter said to me, he said, oh, so I heard you were pregnant. And I was like, I was pregnant. I was like, what? And in that moment, like, I will never forget like fear 
just disaster, like this feeling of, oh my gosh, what happened between now and 20 minutes ago? I guess they found something out that I don't know. First of all, I have an eight-year-old son. He was born, everything is great. And I was still pregnant, but it was that moment where he might've heard something like she was pregnant or something and he didn't fully hear. And he was trying to like be kind, but it was that miss of oh my goodness, I was pregnant. And I didn't know that they were concerned about this or I had no idea if it was just a miscommunication. And that moment I can relive just telling you about it. It was one of the scariest moments of my entire life. And he had so much power over that situation and he wasn't trying to do it maliciously, but it's part of my experience and it's impacted me ever since I can think about that moment and how words matter, just like you said, with the toothpaste example. Absolutely. And I think that Preskini has done this well, but they talk about how anxiety is suffering. You know, it's the things we say, the things we don't say that can create that suffering that is hidden and you can't see it. But yeah, choose your words wisely. And we try to couple things together. You know, nurses go in, they're doing hourly rounding, they're doing bedside shift report. And so they're doing the six P's, you know, pain, potty, positioning, parched, possessions, pump, all those things. And while you're doing that, just connect, right? And they have those conversations. And so as the transporter was trying to do your job, but then also do it in a safe space. I've done that probably more times than not. I have foot and mouth disease. So I probably said the wrong thing that I created anxiety unbeknownst to me. <laughs> And so I've got to rethink through that. But essentially it is, you have power in your words and you're gifted a a very unique place in someone's life journey. And so we've got to live it out well. So true, Aaron. We have a lot of young aspiring leaders that listen to this podcast. And you do have such a cool sort of way that you work through a bunch of roles to get to this position. And you alluded to some of them in starting as a transporter and how that influenced your journey. Can you share a couple of nuggets for those who are listening out there of how you got here? And what are the couple of things that if I didn't do this, I wouldn't be here? And what should other people, other young leaders be emulating so that they too can find themselves in the leadership seat should they choose that? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for that. My journey very quickly. I've been in healthcare for 15 years, same health system. It's a wonderful place to work. And I started as a transporter and became a health unit coordinator after that, which is kind of a unit clerk. After that, I took an overnight shift. I worked a night shift for three years during college as an overnight supervisor. So I managed both health unit coordinators and transporters. And then after that, I graduated. I had done a couple of internships here. I sought that out myself. So did one with the quality team doing FMEAs over coach stroke. And then one with our clinical laboratory after we bought a conveyor belt lab processing system from Sweden and graduated, became the director of patient relations. And then stayed in that role for about 10 years, doing different things, took on a few different additional responsibilities. And then I believe it was 2018, was asked to become the system's first chief experience officer. And then in 2021, was asked to become a vice president. And so that's my quick journey over the past 15 years. A couple of things that I would recommend. So I'm going to address maybe what I struggle with. I'll talk personally, because I hate to say this is my generation, what we struggle with. This is what I struggle with. I'm pretty impatient. I think maybe to some degree, I'm pretty entitled. Coming out of college, I have a degree. I should be somewhere at this point. That's kind of me. And then I was, I'm was i a little insecure. And so I have to compensate with working harder. So I think the thing that I have learned is you want to be ambitious, really ambitious. Set a good goal for yourself. Where do you want to be? And then map that out. How do you get there? Do you network? Do you get a certain education? Do you get certain experience? Maybe a combination of those three. And put in the work. Like I said, I would figure out my job and then whatever the job in the job description was, I would add things to it. 
expand the role, think outside the box, make the role you're applying to better than what the requirement is. And sometimes organizations let you do that with liberty. Sometimes they don't, but do it in such a way that adds value horizontally to the organization in your role. And then I would say, be ambitious, but be humble. And there's a new book that I haven't read it yet. It's called Humbition. I think it's a perfect marriage of those two things, but with entitlement and impatience can come pride and arrogance, and that can be toxic. And I'll be honest, starting out, I was that way. I was very hungry and didn't matter what I had to do to get there and who I stepped on. And that was not the right way to get there. And another moment for me that really was meaningful was when I was leading a team and it came out in the survey that some of the members of the team felt like you care more about the results than you do the people. It really stuck with me because you can sometimes just get distracted. You can chase the wrong things. And at the end of the day, if we don't have a good team, if we don't have people that we invest in, results won't be attained. And even if they are, you're going to be left alone and everyone's going to see you that way. And so I think that set a goal, network, get experience, get education, really entrench yourself. And I've been trying to be loyal, right? I've tried, wherever I apply, or if I stay here for another 15 years, I want whoever my employer is or whoever my next job, they want to see that I'm loyal. So don't be afraid to stay for a while and learn and then be humble and learn. You don't know everything. I'm still learning things today with my successes, with my setbacks and just keep learning. Have a growth mindset, not a fixed mindset. And I think that'll help set you up for success. Amen. So well said. Really appreciate that, Aaron. And so in closing today, if you summed up your focus for this year, if you think about where you are, where the organization is, what would it be and why? So for me personally, I was awarded the opportunity to become a vice president, which is a blessing, but I'm probably the youngest vice president by about 10 years in my health system, if not more. I think for me, I really need to make sure that with humility, kind of being the overarching piece, I want to work on emotional intelligence. I want to make sure that my relationships are strong. I build those relationships for the long term, because I think, again, you get a role and it opens your eyes and you thought it was a certain way and it's not, and there's opportunity. So I always try to read books or articles or listen to podcasts that really focus on self-development and being really I have team members that report to me. I have direct reports and they're over their own subsequent departments. And so really to not forget to invest in them and to be available and to really help them through it. And you always see those pictures on LinkedIn or on whatever social platform you see where it says a manager is the one sitting on the rock and yelling at the employees to carry it. And a leader is the one pulling the rope in front of them, you know, trying to get them to where they need to go. And so for me, I've tried to really be diligent and very intentional about rounding consistently on staff and patients, recognizing the small things and the big things. For instance, you know, if they have a baby or if they have surgery or if they get COVID or whatever happens, take them a meal by their house or if they allow you to, but be intentional and write thank you notes and celebrate birthdays and celebrate their anniversaries and just all the things that show them that you care and that you notice them and that you're not so busy because we all are that you can't stop and really prioritize them over the job. Mm Because the job tasks will always come, they'll keep coming, but people really are, it's a finite group and we want to do our very best to make them feel valued to stay. 
Very well said. And I, it actually reminds me of a quote that I have in my office right here. And it says, there are two ways of being creative. One can sing and dance, or one can create an environment in which singers and dancers flourish. So I think that can apply to a lot of different things that you just said. And definitely what you shared hits home. Thank you for that. I also do want to thank you too, just for your vulnerability, because I think that it takes a lot to share. These are things that I'm really focused on that I think are really important. And these are some things that I struggle with too. And they're connected to that and how we're all on our own growth. There's not one person, I think, who can say, oh, I figured it all out. Like I'm done learning. It's like game time. <laughs> so I think we all are learning every day in what we're doing. And it's so important for people who are aspiring into some of these leadership roles to be able to see that that's okay if you don't know things or if you're working on things. In fact, it's expected and it's actually good because it means that you're always trying to get better and just think about all the professional development and personal development that you were talking about, Aaron, coupled with just being open to what team members are saying and constantly reevaluating the approach to improving culture for everybody. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And I hope it was helpful for you and the audience and anybody that is listening that wants to reach out and network or talk about it. I'd be open to that. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I'm Rebecca Corin. Thanks for listening to Moments Move Us. Remember, when you put people first, your actions can move others in unexpected ways. Be sure to follow wherever you get your audio.